And welcome to what is the final um, ESRC Economic and Social Research Council seminar that's formed part of, for the last eight months, formed part of the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar. And um, I, for those of you who I haven't had an opportunity to meet, I'm Nikki Palmer. I'm a, a lecturer in criminal law at King's College London, and so I'm very grateful for OTJR for working collaboratively with me on this project. And so it's really, it's really great to be here, and it's really great to have an opportunity to introduce Dr. Akin Akamuni. Um, thank you very much for traveling all the way from Canada from Simon Fraser University. Um, so this, this seminar forms the final discussion point that on ways of knowing after atrocities. So we've had a series of 10 seminars where we've started to look at the different means through which serious human rights violations are known and responded to. And particularly what we've seen is how knowledge of atrocity has been shaped by the different forms through which it is transmitted. And we've had, contri we've had contributions from political scientists, from lawyers, from psychologists, from anthropologists. Um, and, and now Akin brings a geographer to the discussions. And we've started to see some of the real exchange, interdisciplinary exchanges that to some extent challenge, well both, both illuminate and challenge the dominant means through which atrocity has been known in the field of transitional justice. So we've seen that transitional justice has been incredibly receptive to legal, statistical and testimonial types of knowledge. But what we've seen over the past nine months is maybe a need to start to introduce ideas around particular time and place where that knowledge is attained and, and the forms through which it is then transmitted and to try to introduce some ideas around, around power in understanding how we might, the, the, the weight that is attached to different types and ways of knowing atrocity. And so it's, it's really with that in mind and with taking this broader methodological focus that today we're going to hear from Akin who's going to be talking to us about making sense of past atrocity towards methodologies of haunting. So thank you very much for joining us again. And I look uh, thank you all for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure. Um, and I'll start by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Akin, uh, and I am a ghost haunter. <laughs> I'm a geographer. <laughs> but I, I am really fascinated uh, with the whole um, idea of ghosts and haunting uh, and so on. And I really find it very useful for thinking uh, about atrocities. And so that's really what I'm going to be trying to do today. Obviously, um, this is a topic that is very dear to my heart. So, you know, it's one of those things that cannot really fully um, exhaust it. But I'm just going to try and sort of lay out uh, some of the fundamental um, ideas around haunting and how we as uh, transitional justice scholars might actually um, be able um, to employ those ideas in, in thinking about how historical injustice um, can um, be understood. Unnecessarily uh, fixed, and I'm very wary of trying to uh, solve any problem, and I really don't um, see myself as uh, a problem solver in that sense. But I, I'm a critical thinker, um, and I like to think about some of these um, kinds of um, ideas and how we might approach it in a conceptual way. So I, I know that not everyone in this room might 
you know, be theoretically minded. Uh, so I'm just going to try and make it um, a kind of a, um, sort of not not simplistic, but sort of um, you know. Um, uh, a kind of uh, base uh, basic knowledge of um, of theory here. Uh, so, what really informs my work is uh, my research on South Africa. So, I did my PhD um, on uh, the will to transform. That's what what I called it, uh, the will to transform in um, South Africa. So, I uh, what I did was to try and understand um, how um, the South African Reconciliation Project, as I call it. Um, has been sort of understood and how it's sort of shifted its, in its focus um, beyond you know, the original time in, in which it was uh, conceived. Uh, and so that led me to think about how the South African project, Reconciliation Project, is still an ongoing thing. And, and you know, I, I was very weary of uh, um, ideas around completion and, and finality that you know, I always find um, very prevalent in, in South African studies and, and, and transitional justice um, um, scholarship. So that in itself has shaped how I think about um, the past, about history, and thinking about temporality. So th those are ideas that I'm going to be trying to work with today. Uh, and this is uh, a memorial uh, in South Africa, in Soweto, um, which was put in place. Uh, it's called the Hector Peterson uh, Memorial. And it, for me, it's one of those you know, iconic moments in which you realize that the past is not really past. It's still very prep, uh, present and has a way of meddling with uh, the present. And so that is the kind of thing that we are going to be listening to today. But I, I broke the, the talk down in, in various sections so that it would be easy for us to all follow. Um, so I thought I, I would you know, start by sort of conceptualizing haunting and what it means and um, how to sort of use the ideas around haunting to think methodologically. Uh, and when I say methods or methodology here, I, I mean something completely different to the way it's used. Uh, it's not just about how we um, you know, go into the archives and get data, or how you go into the to the field to interview people. Yes, it does sort of incorporate some of those um, issues, but it's more about how we think about methods and how we use our perspectives um, to inform our research uh, and to shape the questions we ask in the field and how we draw lines of completion. Uh, so to speak, which is something many PhD students face when you are going to the field and get your data and spend months agonizing on, on how you're going to write your uh, thesis. And then you obviously have to bring some sense of closure, obviously, to, to, to your writing, to your thesis, uh, which is very artificial, as we know. It never really ends. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, you know, for someone else reading that thesis, it seems like a, a very neat, kind of bounded work. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is unsettle that boundedness of research and try to say, well, what about if we think about projects as always ongoing, as always being shaped by um, the very um, dynamic nature of these problems that we are studying? And so haunting is, uh, presents a, a very unique language uh, for thinking about that. And um, so in, in trying to make sense of this uh, landscape of haunting, what I'm trying to do uh, is to introduce this, this very, very weighty concept. It's definitely about ghosts, um, but it's not just about ghosts. It's also about um, 
specters and, and, and angels. <laughs> so you're gonna if you if you're a fan of that kind of genre, uh, it's Halloween. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know, yeah, definitely it, it will make sense. So it's it's a concept. It's um, uh, it's a, what I would call an, an analytic um, device. Um, it allows us to think. Uh, it's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of knowing the world. And when we say atrocities, is obviously we, we're talking about things that have very deep and uh, uh, very complex histories uh, associated with them. But there's also the element of, of time, time temporality, which is something that we take for granted. And it's a discussion we tend to have from time to time in human geography about temporality and space and so on. Uh, and in sociology also, there are sociologists of, of time who look at time and the complex nature of time. And there's obviously influences from um, you know, French philosophers, including uh, Henri uh, Bergson, who uh, has obviously done a great deal of work um, thinking about time. But there's also work by geographers like Doreen Massey, uh, who talks very, very deeply about time and, and how time is sort of shaped um, by space and, and speciality as well as um, David Harvey, um, who um, was one of the first people to, to think about um, temporality in terms of um, globalization and, and the sh uh, a shrinking world. And, and so that it's, it's always um, something we, uh, as geographers, think about, about time and how time um, can be messy and have um, implications beyond uh, the now. And so that's uh, one of the ways in which um, you know, I find um, the idea of haunting very relevant. But it's also a, a methodological device in, in the sense that it does um, allow us to, to, to think about how we uh, employ certain kinds of methods uh, for re researching and writing about uh, the complex um, entanglements between um, events and, and the time frames in which they happen. So those are the two ways in which I'm going to be trying to make sense of haunting in this particular talk. Uh, so when I say haunting, therefore, um, I mean both uh, conceptual and methodological um, dimensions of haunting. So that's um, kind of background. But I have a couple of quotes here and there um, that I've chosen specifically because I, I think they sort of eliminate um, some of the, the things that I'm, I'm going to be talking about. And this is. Uh, a quote from Politics Out of History, which is a very wonderful book uh, written by Wendy Brown. Uh, she's a political theorist, but, but her work sort of cuts uh, across uh, a great deal of uh, disciplinary uh, debates. Uh, and she talked about guilt uh, and talked about how one's guilt is established and a measure of victimization secured by an apology or material compensation is the historical event presumed to be concluded, sealed as past, healed, or brought to closure? And, and, and so what she does here, essentially, is sort of critique the idea of closure, which comes al along with a great deal of transitional justice research and, and obviously processes, uh, which in, in a way is, is sh you know, shaped by a particular way of seeing atrocities. And, and also shaped by um, the kinds of very popular, fashionable um, discourses around forward movement, which they all sound very you know, wonderful uh, in theory, but, but actually can be very merciless um, when you think about them in practice, because the past doesn't really just evaporate like that. Uh, it ha actually has very strong material uh, bearings, which um, resist closure, resist um, finality. So this is just one quote. And there's another one. 
where she talks about inheritance. And she says we inherit not what really happened to the de dead, but what lives on from that happening, what is conjured from it, how past generations and events occupy the force fields of the present, how they claim us, and how they haunt, plague, and inspire our imaginations and visions for the future. So it, uh, on the one hand, she's talking about the, the material dimension of haunting, how um, the spirits of the dead, and not necessarily um, ontologically physical um, or you know, real spirits, but spirits of these events, these atrocities, how they actually haunt um, you know, the present and also inspire our imaginations and how we think about um, what the future holds. And so, so this is uh, a very, I think it's a very apt kind of descriptor of um, haunting, how um, it's not just about um, ghosts you know, <laughs> or specters hovering uh, around the, uh, the surfaces or whatever, uh, but generally about how that particular kind of haunting and that kind of imaginary of haunting in itself um, has a way of, of messing with how we think about the past and the present. Uh, it's a really great book. Um, I don't know if anyone here has read it, um, but if you haven't, it's one of those books that I really recommend for uh, it really gives us a very different kind of approach to how we think about history and how we think about time and the relationship between them and, and the politics um, of that. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's really very useful. Uh, and that leads me to the idea of haunting. What does it mean when we talk about haunting? And it's a very fascinating term. It's a very you know, rich um, term. There, there's some um, debate about the precise uh, etymology of haunting. But there's some agreement, obviously, that it can be traced back to the French word hantise, um, which lends itself to this kind of idea of some kind of obsessive um, you know, frequenting of, of places um, by a spirit um, that you know, doesn't want to go away. It's still you know, in a kind of state of um, you know, not you know, going, but always returning. And, and, and that is very much endemic um, within the French understanding of the term. Now, it's very interesting um, because it's not just um, it's not just about the fact that the spirits keep coming. And obviously, we're not talking about real spirits. Yeah, I don't believe in spirits, <laughs> um, but it's a metaphor for things that refuse to go away and, and keep coming back. Um, you know, whether it's just an idea that you hold on to and, and you know just haunt you, uh, or whether it's the sight of injustice, you know, when you go somewhere and you see that. Um, if it haunts you, if it refuses to go away, then it's, you know, involved in a process of haunting. And in, in a sense, um, you could trace um, the, the, the history of haunting back to many scholars who've uh, looked at it in, in a very interesting way. And, and they, they talk about haunting in, uh, in a kind of dynamic sense. Um, it's not just about um, what haunting is doing, but the concept itself and how to think about it in, in a very kind of theoretically astute um, kind of way. Now, uh, before I talk about Derrida, who's uh, like one of the godfathers of haunting studies, um, I, I just wanted to say a, a little bit more about hauntis, uh, which will, you will find coming out in the work of, of Derrida. And there are three ways to think about hauntis. Um, it's, it's a noun, it's a verb, and it's an adjective. As a noun, it refers to the return of ghosts or specters. Um, so that's you know, one way. And secondly, it has a spatial connotation, because it's always tied to place. Now, 
if you um, did a Google search for um, Haunt, you will find that one of the earliest um, sources of, of that word, of, of the root word, is Heim, uh, which is German for home. And it, it, it is tied to that word in the sense that it, it talks about a particular um, dwelling place uh, which a spirit goes back to because it is firmly uh, embedded within that particular site. So that's one way of thinking about haunting, about returning to a particular um, place, a place of the originary uh, event. So if you watch ghost movies, you see that the spirits always come back to a certain place to haunt that place. So um, if it's a haunted building, it's constantly being haunted in the same space. And as an adjective, um, it is suggestive of movement, of uh, movement from one particular time frame to another particular time frame. And so that's um, where temporality comes in, when we say, well, the past and the present are sort of, there's a kind of fuzzy relationship there between past and present, uh, because there's always movement um, between them. So those are the three ways of thinking about haunting. And that's, uh, those three ways sort of emerge very strongly in the work of um, Jack um, Derrida, who um, died in 2005 or so. Um, and, but before he died, he really wrote a great deal of uh, material uh, on haunting. And before he went delved into haunting, he actually uh, spent a, a great deal of time talking about deconstruction. I don't know if anyone is familiar with deconstruction. But in a way, haunting is indebted to thinking around deconstruction because it talks about absence and presence and the relationship between them. So hauntology, therefore, is a play on the idea of um, ontology. So in, in the French, the, the H is silent. Um, in English, we hear haunt. Uh, but Derrida, what he does is to play on that um, relationship between them and talk about ontology as um, the relationship that um, we have with things that we cannot see, but actually have a presence nonetheless. So that's a very radical way of thinking about um, haunting and thinking about the idea that the, the, the things that we do not see might actually be meddling uh, in the present. And he talked about how haunting is historical, uh, but it's not dated. It's never docilely uh, given a, a date in the chain of presence, day after day, according to the instituted order of the calendar. Essentially, what he's saying here is it has nothing to do with how we think about time. It, it unsettles ideas of linearity. It breaks with uh, traditional uh, understandings of progress, of movement. And essentially, when we think about, you know, for instance, that the past is past, um, you give it a year or two, and then you come back and realize it's not really past. It's still there. It's still um, a, a problem. Uh, so you can think about many cases um, of you know events in the last maybe 10, 20 years. Um, you know, a, a very good example would be obviously the end of apartheid in South Africa. Uh, but you know, this you know when people talk about apartheid, there's almost a sense in which people say, well, it ended in '94, um, as if um, it just you know there was somebody who came with this huge marker and just said, well, this is where uh, apartheid ended and this is where it died. Um, but it's not really that case. So officially, apartheid may be gone, um, but it still has a way of haunting um, South Africans. And, and it's, it's a reality that you face when you go to South Africa, that even though apartheid is gone, it's still there. It's still 
the traces of the past still linger on and meddles with and unsettles people in a very uncanny kind of way. And so this is the way in which um, Derrida talked about haunting, about how it, it doesn't care about time in the traditional sense. It doesn't care about the calendar. Uh, it only cares about uh, the idea of justice, uh, which is summoned by um, Derrida in many multiple ways. So he coined the term in this uh, very interesting, very dense, um, complex book called Spectres of Max, which was published in, in 1994, and was very controversial when it was released um, because it was a very fraught time in, in history at the time. He'd been writing um, actually before 94 on the topic. It just it, it just you know became a, a bigger project when he wrote the book uh, Spectres of Marx. And so he began um, to talk about the idea that this was you know, a time in history when um, the Berlin Wall had fallen. Um, we were moving you know, you know, into a post-Cold War uh, era in, in, in at the time. And he was saying, well, hold on a moment before we be become celebratory, uh, before we become jubilant. Um, we still need to think about how the past still lives on, in, even though the walls have come down and the Cold War uh, seems to be gone. And that was a, a very radical thing to say because he was, in, in a sense, he was evo evo evoking um, the idea that the past of uh, communism still um, was there <clears throat> and <clears throat> haunting the present, even though it, it seemed like everyone was um, sort of heralding this new um, era. And he talked about, um, he referenced um, Karl Marx, obviously, uh, Spectres of Marx. And uh, he pointed to the spectral logic of haunting in Marx's work. Um, and he used a particular uh, term, Heimzukong, uh, which is a German uh, term. And he used that term to try and understand why Marx was referring back in the day, in, in the 19th century, to the specter of communism that was haunting um, Europe at the time. And the word um, Heimzukong itself is a very interesting um, term because it means seeking a home or dwelling, which still you know, goes back to the word um, Heim. And essentially what um, Derrida was trying to say and, and sort of genuflecting to, to Marx is that haunting is about unfinished business, about uh, how the past has a way of shaping the present, even when we think that the past is gone. Uh, and, and that is a very interesting reality. But there's also more uh, to the specters of Marx's thesis. Derrida was writing at a time when, because of the end of the Cold War, um, there were writers like uh, Francis Fukuyama, I don't know if you've um, heard of uh, Fukuyama, who was heralding this, what he called the end of history. Um, he, this was in the, in the late 80s. He was saying, well, we've all moved beyond um, communism and everyone is a capitalist now. So we're all essentially, um, you know, it's just the, the destiny of the world to become capitalist, um, to embrace um, capitalist ideas. And he will say, well, the proof of that is that um, communism has ended in, 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 um, in uh, the USSR at the time. And, and so this was a critique of this particular way of thinking about history and criticizing this jubilant idea that um, we were, we're just moving forward toward progress. So he was, in, in, a, in a sense, criticizing the idea of historical, um, the historical idea of, of progress. And this is uh, the picture of uh, Fukuyama's um, book. It's still a bestseller, interestingly. And it's worth reading, even though it's, you know, 
it's something that many people disagree with, including myself. Uh, but it's really worth you know reading because he floats this idea that you know the time you know of um, communism and and all the other radical ideas had gone, and we were essentially moving towards this brave new world where everyone was going to embrace liberal democracy and so on. So this was the the foundation of um, his. Uh, ideas of um, the end of history. But Derrida actually takes a different kind of perspective and says that we have not really reached the end of history as such, but rather come to the limits of uh, a way of thinking in, in a linear way about history. And he criticized Fukuyama's uh, assumptions that the end of history was the realization of a kind of finalizing logic of liberal democracy. So in, in Derrida's view, um, the relationship between past and present should not be reduced to one of historical progress and telos, um, given that the past is never really left behind in a teleological sense of the word. So specters of the past make it virtually impossible for, for us to make a clean break, so to speak, uh, from the past. And one of the references um, for, for Derrida here is um, the story of Hamlet. I don't know if you know Shakespeare uh, very well, but um, he references uh, you know, the, 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 some of the ideas in um, the, the story of Hamlet. Uh, and how that in itself gives us a, a, a sense um, of how time is out of joint, if we're going to use uh, a, fr- a very popular phrase uh, from Hamlet. And he, he talked about how, in thinking about the present, we are constantly always going to have to deal with the past because um, time is always out of joint. Uh, and this is a, um, obviously referencing Hamlet, who was confronted by the ghost of his dead father and, and who made that statement that time is out of joint. And um, also there's to be or not to be, if you, if you know um, Hamlet very well. Um, and it's also something that Derrida uses in a very, very clever way to talk about um, presence and absence and the relationship between them. So ontology in that sense, therefore, is a, a play on the term um, ontology, which means being or presence. And he essentially is proposing this very radical idea that um, we are always um, sort of wrapped in this kind of logic in which we're constantly looking for con- concrete um, evidence uh, and, and you know things that we can see, things that we can touch, uh, things that we can sort of comprehend in, in, in a very particular kind of time. And he is saying here that um, we also need to think about things that we do not see. Um, things he calls um, absence pres- ha- absent presence, um, because they're not physically there, but they're nevertheless there um, meddling with um, reality. So this is also um, one of the, the, the kind of um, ways in which Derrida talked about um, ontology. But overall, we could say um, that haunting, in a way, is related to the idea that we might be dealing with temporal disjuncture as opposed to a linear progress, so movement from past to present to future, that kind of thinking around chronology is um, critiqued by Derrida in, in very interesting ways. So it, he talks about this juncture here in the sense that rather than a very smooth kind of movement, a kind of very smooth movement towards the, the future, we what we have are pauses and gaps and um, unsettled kind of uh, relations and so on. And he argued, therefore, that the scholar um, who is thinking along uh, the lines of ontology needs to learn how to live with ghosts, needs needs to learn how to speak with ghosts, (laughs) and um, 
particularly those of, of, of victims of atrocities who do not have anyone to speak for them, uh, and recognize that the ghosts of the past might actually be beckoning on us to speak um, on behalf of um, those who are dead, so to speak. And he talked about us having a kind of hospitable attitude towards specters of the past as opposed to trying to banish them. So what we do in, in many uh, transitional justice processes is try to banish this ghost and try to sort of you know, get shamans to sort of get them off um, so that we can move into a new dispensation. And he says, well, we should hold on for a bit and not just try to banish the ghost, but actually listen to what the ghosts have to say. Obviously, he doesn't mean that in a literal sense, but he's essentially trying to say that when you know, things haunt us, you know, including historical atrocities, what we need to do is try to understand why that might be and, and before trying to prescribe any kind of grand formulas. And in, in that kind of sense, that's my criti critique of um, truth and reconciliation commissions. Because what they do essentially is try to banish ghosts. Um, and, and they generally do not have um, bad intentions. Obviously, it's usually with good intentions. Uh, but you know, like the saying goes, the, the, the road to, to hell is paved with <laughs> lots of good intentions. Uh, and so one of the problems, and that, that's one of the challenges you will find with truth and reconciliation commissions, is that you know, I've been studying them for a while now, and they always go back to the same problem. They start off by trying to fix you know, one problem, whether it's uh, post-conflict situations, genocide, whatever. But they always go back to the same thing, where once they've submitted their reports, it's almost like um, they expect that by essentially by submitting the, the, the reports, that somehow everything's just going to be rosy and back to normal. That victims and perpetrators are sort of just going to hug each other and just be happy. Um, but, but we find that that's not really what works. Uh, in fact, I've never seen it happen. Uh, I've never seen a, a situation which a Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually fixes anything. What it does, and it, it does play a very important role, I'm not necessarily saying we should throw it completely away, uh, I'm just saying we probably need to rethink how we um, research Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Uh, I don't think there's another model that can replace TRCs, uh, but I think when we write about TRCs, we need to be constantly open to the fact that what the TRCs are trying to, to achieve may not happen in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years because we still have to deal with many of these ghosts still hovering around um, and calling for justice and calling for various kinds of things, reparation, redress, and so on. And, and that in itself is the challenge of trying to embrace this ontological perspective that makes it uh, easy for us to question whether um, TRCs or whatever kind of processes, treaty processes, are actually um, maybe we're expecting too much from them. Maybe uh, what we should be trying to do is understand the aftermath of TRCs, what happens after TRCs. And, and that's a question that I asked in my PhD and subsequently in, in my research about what really happens after the reports have been submitted. What really goes on? What are the, the, the measures in place? What are the mechanisms in place um, to see that justice is still served, that people feel a sense that their voices are heard, that you know their feelings and their perspectives are not just brushed aside just to make way for a future to come? And, and that is the challenge in, in South Africa and many other countries where um, the TRC is seen as some kind of 
um, you know, one size fits all, uh, fixes all kind of uh, a solution. And that is uh, the challenge um, here in thinking about how might we use this kind of perspective to inform how we go into the field and how we might maybe be open um, to the fact that maybe we're not going to write a thesis about how everything comes together nicely and neatly. Uh, that maybe we might, you know, be working with something that we have to be committed to for the next 20 years in trying to understand how it unfolds and unravels. Uh, and, and obviously there's been lots of um, debates in um, academic literatures about how we exit the field. I know it's, it's something people talk about very uh, seriously now uh, because we tend to, you know, you have a project, especially here in the UK, where you have four years to do a PhD. So, you, you know, the first year you do your, you know, gathering and whatever, and then you go into the field and collect your data and go back home and do the writing, uh, which leads to this kind of sense in which you are actually in the process of writing about atrocities, that you are actually, in a way, finalizing them. Uh, and that's the, the challenge, uh, to remain open to the fact that maybe what I'm writing about is something completely different. Uh, maybe there's still more to the story after I've submitted my PhD thesis and, and defended my, my uh, the, the thesis. And so this is a, the, uh, the perspective to take forward, to thinking about how the past um, has a kind of uncanny presence. And, and by uncanny, uh, this is indebted to, to the work of Sigmund Freud, who's, uh, who was a, an Austrian um, psychoanalyst, who was very controversial, um, but that's not to say that we cannot um, you know, make use of some of his ideas. I think he was a very brilliant scholar. Um, but I really find the idea of the uncanny sort of relates very perfectly with um, Derrida's um, idea of haunting. Because Freud talked about how um, uncanniness is a situation in which one, in a way, um, is unsettled by feelings of, of loss, uh, of being at home, but also when you're when you're at home, you also feel that it's 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 kind of strangely familiar. It's familiar, but it's also strange at the same time, and and that's really what the uncanny is all about. And the word is you know it, it's also German. It comes. It's literally uh, means um, a negation of the familiar, unheimlich, um, which is essentially uh, a negation of Heimlich, which means homely or familiar. And so ghosts, in a sense, uh, what they're trying to do is make the familiar strange and make, make us feel, in, in a sense, that, that the familiar uh, is, is uh, not really what we think about. It's not really uh, what we know. And, and Freud did a, a very good job in, in his essay called The Uncanny, which is published in 1919. And you will find various um, iterations of that, where he, he talked about uh, Unheimlich as something long known to us, once very familiar, um, but that has become unfamiliar or forgotten due to repression. So we repress the memories. And in many ways, that's what many um, transitional justice mechanisms do. They essentially, in trying to move forward, only repress something. And it comes back somewhere down the line to haunt. Uh, in South Africa, um, after uh, you know the TRC, that was really when the problem started. That's when people began to say, well, um, what about reparations for me? Um, how do I live my life? Now that I've told these stories, now that I'm re-traumatized, how do I you know, deal? I, have I told my story just for, for, my, for me to become a spectacle? Is my story just part of this huge production uh, of narratives that people 
around the world will read and feel, and you know, I feel sympathy or empathy, whatever. Uh, is is that really what's going to happen to my story? And, and that you know was a, a very real problem in South Africa after people had told their stories. It, it now became a problem of okay, so we've we've opened um, the, this can of worms. How do we put the worms back? Uh, but it's not really if we're going to go with a haunting uh, perspective. Maybe it's about actually allowing those worms to actually you know sort of move around and, and actually do their work in the sense that we are not trying to fix and trying to make things nice but actually deal with the problems that these kinds of um, issues bring about in us. So Sigmund Freud talked about how Heimlich is a word that uh, the meaning of which develops towards an ambivalence until it finally coincides with its opposite. So he, he says well in a sense Heimlich and Unheimlich are actually sort of closely connected in many ways. So depending on uh, how you're looking at the problem, you might be talking about something that's homely, or you might, in fact, be talking about something that is homely but still very strange. And um, the example that he uses is, is about uh, childhood uh, memories. So if you know a, a child goes through a very traumatic event, um, Somewhere down the line, you know, 20 years, there's a trigger somewhere. Maybe um, she or he experiences some something completely different, but it acts as a trigger and it brings back everything that was repressed and thought to be forgotten. So that's uh, a very good example of how Heimlich uh, um, works. And so um, Derrida also actually borrows some of these ideas in, in Spectres of Max and talks about the uncanny, about as a kind of absence that is actually very present, hovering on the surface and, and actually creating feelings of angst and anxiety uh, in people who um, think about it. Um, there's also a very uh, a different kind of lineage to thinking about haunting and ontology, which comes from the work of uh, Walter Benjamin, um, who was this very brilliant, and one of my favorite thinkers actually, um, who talked about history in a very unique kind of way. Um, he was a victim of um, the Nazi um, era, the onslaught of, of, of the Nazis in Europe at the time. And so he was writing as a Jewish man um, living in Europe at the time and trying to think about how do we make sense of what was going on around him. And he uh, had this very interesting painting that he bought. Um, in, he bought in 1920 or so and uh, called uh, Angel Nouveau's, um, which um, essentially meant um, the, the new angel, but he essentially called it the angel of history. And he talked about how the angel of history, in, in many ways, um, is a kind of metaphor for thinking about the relationship between the past and the present. And it, it was also a way for him to criticize this idea of movement towards progress. So, um, and I'm very skeptical myself when, when I hear people talk about progress, whatever. I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? Um, are we seeing by progress that we're drawing a fine line between the past and the present, which is a very dangerous thing to do, because once you think you've sealed the past off, it has a way of busting out and, and interfering with everything else. Uh, and, and I think one of the ways is to think about, you know, the danger of history in this kind of sense, and I really like the way he describes it. He says, there's a picture by Paul Cleave, the, 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 the man who painted the, the painting. It shows an angel who seems about to move away from something he stares at. His eyes are wide, his mouth is open, his wings are spread, his face is turned toward the past, where a chain of events appears before us. He sees one single catastrophe. And that's a very, very, very uh, important line. He sees one single thing. He doesn't see multiple fragments. He sees 
uh, um, the past as somehow enfolded within the present, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and holds at his feet. So essentially, if we're going to think about this, what he means is that um, the past doesn't really go away like that. Um, and it's a, a chain of events, sometimes nested, sometimes entangled, but not in that kind of linear way that we think about um, progress, about how we're moving away from the past into some kind of um, jubilant um, um, and hopeful future. Um, and, and that is something that, that he does in this particular painting. Uh, it's There's nothing, um, I, I don't know, you might have seen this um, Angelus um, Novus uh, before. Um, it's a very remarkable, It's there's nothing really um, grand about it, but it's it's the way in which, obviously, um, Benjamin was writing from his experience at the time, so he was obviously influenced by what had happened to him, and so for him, the angel of history was a metaphor for thinking about how um, what was happening around him was a way of, um, you know, um, shaping reality and shaping what he knew. But this particular angel of history wasn't um, the kind of angel that we see in movies. It's not a very nice angel. It was a, an angel that was coming uh, with a mission to, to write um, unfinished business. It was, was on a mission of uh, awakening the dead um, and recovering a smashed historical memory in the face of uh, the atrocities of um, the Nazis. So it's that kind of thing that um, this kind of lineage that ontology has. And finally, um, Avery Gordon. Um, she's the most contemporary um, contributor to, to the haunting um, literature. And I, I would say she's probably even more influential than many of the others because she's been able to sort of bring a very, very kind of sociological uh, perspective to the, to the idea of haunting. And she, um, it's a wonderful book. If you have the time, if you're interested in any way, um, Ghostly Matters. And it's a series of um, uh, essays, actually, you know, she puts together. And she used um, very, very uh, understandable examples, including the movie uh, Beloved. I don't know if you know Beloved, um, Toni Morrison's book, uh, which was made into a film. And, uh, uh, and she analyzes that as a kind of site of memory, if we're going to use uh, that term, as a kind of site of, of haunting, because it's a site of, of uh, memory. And, and she also builds on Derrida and, and builds on you know, that particular lineage to think about haunting as you know, a phenomenon in which the normal division between the past, present, and, and future are not as, as fine or as, you know, as neat as, as they are, you know, the way they're presented. And there's an unsettled relationship between what we see now and you know, what, what will be, what is going to come, because the past has a way of sort of uh, meddling with realities. And so she uh, made a, a very strong case in, in the book, um, Ghostly Matters, uh, for scholars to incorporate ghosts into academic thinking. And uh, even though it sounds very, you know, like how do you incorporate ghosts into academic thinking? But she does a very good job of saying, well, it's not really about believing in ghosts or not. It's about making some kind of space for the past and thinking about how the past has a way of sort of um, finding its way into the present. Um, and, you know, the, the subtitle title of the book is Haunting and the Sociological Imagination. It's about how we imagine these things. And, and this is very useful uh, for, for thinking about atrocities and how we imagine them. And she says, haunting describes how that which appears not to be there is often uh, a seething presence, acting on and often meddling with taking for granted reality. So we take it for granted that uh, a particular transitional justice 
project or program is going to sort of fix everything, level things, and maybe introduce a, a vocabulary of, of hope and, and change and transformation and so on. There are many kinds of discourses around transitional justice now. Um, in South Africa, it was about Ubuntu. Uh, it was uh, very popular at the time, talking about Ubuntu. Uh, but Ubuntu was also heavily criticized by victims who said, well, um, I'm not going to be my brother's keeper when um, my brother um, essentially doesn't even understand what happened to me. Uh, so you know, it becomes a, a question of power relations and how uh, people are positioned and, and who's on the receiving end of this forgiveness uh, or reconciliation, whatever. And, and there's obviously lots of very complex power relations uh, in there that needs to be unpacked and, and understood. And so Gordon. Um, is definitely one of the key people to, to think about um, how we also, as scholars, um, not necessarily just transitional justice scholars, but as sociologists, geographers, historians, and whatever, uh, need to be open to the possibility of being led somewhere by ghosts. Uh, allowing, for instance, after you've finished your research, uh, the fact that you have, well, maybe finished the research, uh, to, to sort of um, not be a final thing because you do not necessarily finalize the work. It, you have to go back to it and probably revisit some of the themes and, and, and see how what you sent back then, five years ago, three years ago, ten years ago, might actually um, you know, still be you know, actually playing out in, in contemporary times. And she talked about um, the always unsettled relationship between what we see and what we know. Uh, and so the things we see and we think we see uh, are not necessarily always you know, what we really think we know and, and, and what is really the knowledge that is out there. And so that's another um, very valid point. And, and she talks about how haunting is um, a paradigmatic um, way in which life is more complicated than those of us who studied have usually granted. Haunting is a constituent uh, element of modern social life. To study social life, one must confront the ghostly aspects of it. So it's that confrontation, um, whether it's um, through research, through writing, through uh, talk like this, uh, that we make the knowledge of a trust is known and how, um, how to think about it and how to be open to its various permutations and how it might morph into something completely different. Whereas in South Africa in, in the 90s, it was all about, well, let's just try to keep the peace. Uh, but now it's no longer about just trying to keep the peace. It's now about issues of equity and justice uh, and issues of violence and how do we deal with this you know, lingering problems which might be seen as uh, sort of uh, upshots of what happened um, um, during the apartheid era. So those are really very important um, questions uh, to think about. And this leads um, to how um, the, 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 the next section about temporality and you know the, the geographies of atrocities and, and for me it's you know if you know we could think about many examples I mean, it's not exhaustive but these are ones that I, I think about a lot uh, you think about how natives have been dispossessed in many parts of the world in North America in Australia in Southern Africa and so on and so forth that is one atrocity that still has a way of seeping into the present. I'm currently doing uh, research on uh, the British Columbia Treaty process, so we're looking at um, the relationship between settlers and indigenous people in British Columbia and Canada, and how that in itself is very much about haunting. It's very, in fact, it's all about haunting. People are generally haunted by the past. And that has a way of sort of shaking um, certainty in, in the province. So that's just one example 
uh, of that. Uh, there's also the enslavement of, of Africans in, in the United States, um, Holocaust, um, the, the comfort women. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of the comfort women who were um, you know, taken as sexual um, slaves in, during the world, um, Second World War. So there are many multiple examples, um, but this, the, you know, this leads to the South African um, case. Uh, so the TRC was set up in 95, um, and it was driven by this, um, the, the, the act, um, which was explicitly about national unity and reconciliation. So obviously, um, the people who were tasked with the uh, responsibility of doing the TRC obviously wanted to see that happen, wanted reconciliation, and wanted national unity, but it didn't always fit that way. Um, so they used um, models like um, revealing is healing, come and tell, um, come and listen as uh, people tell their stories. So there was a, a very strong storytelling um, model which has been used in many um, truth and reconciliation commissions around the world now. It's very popular for, for you to ask people to tell their stories because telling the story is somehow seen as sort of um, uh, a, a key ingredient to uh, bringing about healing in community. So that is a model that needs to also be problematized because it sort of um, it, 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 it makes people feel that well, when I tell my story, in a way, you know, justice just happens. But we know that that doesn't always happen. And there's also the dimension of the uh, the reports. Um, the final reports, and one thing that always fascinates me is that report. And usually, they always say "final report," uh, as if to say, "Well, now we've you know, everything nice and tidy." And um, but it's not always the case. And even um, Desmond Tutu uh, he reflects now and thinks, "Well, maybe we we could have done things differently with the TRC. Uh, maybe we should have given it more time. It was too short. It was just you know about two years and six months or so. Uh, maybe you know we could have looked at things in a different way." Uh, and, and that leads to the question of how do we unsettle finality? And, and it's not, I'm just going to jump through now to how do we do that um, with, you know, in the face of um, groups like Kulumani Support Group who contend that South Africa uh, is currently pretending that the past is past. So how do we do that in a research kind of way? Um, just, I have very limited time, so I'm just going to skip um, towards how do we do that uh, methodologically? And, and there's a very interesting quote from Derrida here who talks about how the scholar needs to be um, open to um, you know, issues of presence and non-presence, actuality and inactuality, life and non-life, or thinking about the possibility of the specter, the specter as possibility. And you know, it, 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 it's a question of how do we rethink method and methodology. And for me, it's, it starts by unthinking what method is, what it is good for, and in what context. Um, that is something I do very much when I do my work. So, how do I speak for what I've just seen or the, the kind of material that I've collected or the interviews that I've conducted? How do I you know, present that without necessarily finalizing that? And one of the problems, and it's very hard to get away with, is that idea of linearity and order in research. We generally are trained to look for logic, to look for finality, to make everything sort of come together and fit. And there are people like John Law who now come, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Law, he's a wonderful sociologist who um, talked about how we need to incorporate mess uh, in research, incorporate the messiness of life into our research. Uh, that life is not always so clean and perfect, but actually it can be very messy and unstable. Uh, and he does a very good job of talking about how we need to be open to intuitions and apprehensions, hopes and horrors, losses and redemptions, 
mundanes and visions, angels and demons, things that slip and slide. Um, you know, because many times it's those things that actually need to be captured as we do our think, uh, research and think about. Uh, so there's life after method. That's what John Law is talking about. There's more to method than just going out to get data. We need to be informed about how um, these realities um, shape how we think and how we um, engage with the world. And so finally also, uh, there's also the element of the entangled and complicated nature of, of temporality. So time is very, is very complicated. And you know we might be thinking about a particular time, but that time is not even over. It still spills out into another time frame. And that is a very important point as we think about our research and think about how we think about atrocities, that we might be you know, more flexible about thinking about the time of atrocities. Uh, and, and so this messiness allows us to emphasize fluidity and connectivity, uh, as well as unfinished uh, business. So um, in conclusion, uh, I really like this quote from Marx, um, from Derrida, um, because I think it sort of summarizes some of the things that we, I've talked about today. He says, if he loves justice, the scholar of the future, the intellectual of tomorrow should learn from the ghost. He should learn to live by learning how to talk with him, with her, how to let them speak, or how to give them back speech, give them back speech. Even if it is in oneself, uh, in the other, in the, in the other in oneself, they are always their specters, even if they do not exist, even if they are no longer, even if they are not yet. So um, that's a very important point, I, I believe, that we should take forward in thinking, how do we you know, sort of confront the ghosts of the past, even as we do contemporary research about the past, uh, how do we unfreeze time and make time, you know, kind of vibrant and, and dynamic, and not be guilty of uh, presentism or historicism, you know, the, and actually just allow the data to lead us somewhere, uh, almost as as a, a detective will follow the data and let the data speak for itself and allow us and guide us uh, in thinking about the world. So, um, obviously. Um, the references, I really encourage everyone, if you are interested in the topic, to sort of probe deeper into some of the, I would definitely recommend uh, Politics Out of History, as well as Ghostly Matters. They're, they're really very useful um, texts for thinking about these things. But there's also John Law's work on After Method, very, very useful uh, for transitional justice scholars, because I find that a lot of transitional justice is anemic to social theory. It's, it's, it's really something we need to do if we're going to uh, make transitional justice a very vibrant discipline. We need to in engage a theory and engage with more uh, new ways of thinking about the world. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, if you have any questions.